Welcome to Tangential Soup, a fortnightly podcast discussing life in Australia, technology, food, fitness and the like, hosted by myself, David Caddy, Melbourneian, independent developer and tea enthusiast, as well as my good childhood friend, Alexander Carr, Sydney Cider, karate practitioner and lover of adventure. So, an update on coronavirus, Alex? Yeah, well, not so much an update on the coronavirus, um, more an update on what I've seen happen in the uh, the share market recently. I'm not sure. Do you follow the share market at all? Have you seen what's what's been happening? Due I've seen to... it's been down and then down again and down again. Yeah, again. That, is, that is correct. I think it's had a bit of a bounce back today. But um, essentially what's happened is... We've had the fastest 10% decline in the share market's history from when it was at an all-time high, which it was uh, early last week, I think, or, or possibly late the week before that. Is that just our market or like all markets? Or So, yes, that's, that's the global markets. There may be some okay. share markets that haven't quite gone down by 10%, um, but uh, really what everything is usually measured off when you talk about the financial markets is the, US the American markets, yeah. yeah um, more specifically, it's usually the S and P 500, which is the 500 largest uh, companies in in the US, and that's down by about 12 percent. Okay. As of the start of this week, uh, I think it did have a bit of a bounce back, so it's bounced back about two percent, um, but it's still obviously down 10 percent from the high that it was at uh, previously. Now. <laughs> I see this. I see this kind of stuff, and it's always interesting to see when the when the share market does does go down like this. A lot of a lot of the people in the news often talk about it as either a buying opportunity or potentially a foreshadowing of worse things to come. But I, I tend to think that over the long term, the market does go up, even if it does go down more now. Uh, I still think it's a, a really interesting opportunity. Anybody out there is looking to buy some shares, you know, now might now might be a time to do it. It is important to keep in mind, though that this 10% decline that we've just had only takes us back to the values that the share market was sitting at pretty late last year. So it hasn't really taken us back that far at all. How are your shares doing? Well, I lost all, all, all of the gains that I had in my shares. Uh, I have one particular company that is down about 50%, which is, as you can understand, pretty devastating. Yeah. But I, I have other companies that are actually still up. So they're kind of compensating for that loss. Fortunately, the company that is down 50% is actually my smallest holding, uh, and I, I only hold a very small parcel of shares in that company, so the actual, the actual loss in my total portfolio isn't that significant. <laughs> uh, but it was obviously not a very smart decision to buy that company. I'm still holding it in the hope that it will um, sort itself out in the long term, but for the short term, it's, it's done very, very poorly. So it's kind of a wash so far, even though you were doing quite well. Well... Yeah, I was. I was. I was actually. I mean, I was up about ten percent in my shares. So really, what's been wiped out here has just been pretty much in line with the broader market. Mm, mm. Fortunately, uh, so I'm I'm sitting at about zero percent gain in my total portfolio. I think I, I might be up by one or two percent now because the market's kind of sprung back a little bit. Um, fortunately, when I, even when I was sitting at zero, I, I didn't actually ever manage to go into the negative. I was always up by about thirty or forty dollars, maybe or something like that. And uh, I had I, I was also keeping in mind the fact that one of my shares has already paid me a dividend. So that's been cash. It's already been paid to my bank account. So I don't actually have to, 
like I can always think that at least that small portion <laughs> of like the money that I've invested has already gone into my bank account and been realized. So I don't actually have to worry about that small little bit. Well, that's good. But uh, obviously, obviously, most of my money is, is still, or most of the money I've invested at least is still uh, sitting sitting in shares. And uh, over the long term, I, I have a hope that they will continue to perform well, mm. even if in the short term they haven't. Uh, I have actually bought a uh, an index fund when, when the market's gone down. I, I bought it today. And an index fund is just a, a broad parcel of shares that covers a certain index. And mine was just some some small cap companies that I thought might be interesting to invest in in the long term. But uh, obviously, to realize any significant gains out of those, I'm probably going to have to hold them for maybe between five to 10 years is, is kind of a minimum that I would be looking at. But realistically, I'd like to be holding them for 30, 40 years, somewhere, somewhere to that figure. Because ultimately what really makes you money in the share market in the long term is compound interest and you've got to actually just stay in the investment to get that really strong compounding effect true yeah don't want to be cashing out all the time anyway unless you're doing really short-term trading right with the fees and that that's associated with everything well exactly there are there are ways that you can avoid the fees in some way on a kind of high high volume uh trading but usually, if you want to avoid fees, you've either one got to uh, invest in options. Um, options carry a fee just by buying the option, but they don't. There's no kind of the, the fee is percentage based, and that's just really to to actually hold the option. And it's more just kind of a how would I describe it? It's it's just a fee to actually to actually purchase the option, but it's it's a flat percentage. So everyone kind of pays that same percentage to buy those same options. And you could buy a hundred or a thousand of them, but there's no kind of fixed price cost on them. It's just a it's just percentage based based on what you're what you're buying for them. And another way is obviously if you're a very large investor, usually companies or brokers or something like that will be able to give you very good deals on um on uh, on, on on high volume trading. Uh, and another way is it's actually free to buy shares on uh the US market on on some on some products. I don't know if you've heard of Robinhood at all, the uh the investing app. I feel like I have heard that. I don't know where I heard it's, it. It's Maybe they popular. were advertising on a podcast or something. They may have been, yeah, but you can actually buy shares for free on the on uh, Robinhood. I think there's a lot of option and derivatives tra- trading on on Robinhood, so uh yeah, it can be it can be very risky when you've got that kind of access just on a normal financial or a normal stockbroking app, and uh, yeah, I know a lot of people can get into a lot of trouble, and you can put yourself very heavily in debt very quickly with those with those kind of things if you're looking for quick returns. How can they afford to do that? Uh, you know, I've never actually looked into the details behind it. It has it's something to do with the U.S. market specifically. Okay, and obviously, it's all it's all kind of an an e trading app. Like I assume maybe they maybe they just advertise to their users or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but there is there is something about the U.S. market that maybe one day I'll I'll find out that does allow you to trade for free. Um, you can actually access it. So Robinhood, I don't think you can actually access Robinhood from Australia. There is another stockbroking app called Stake. Um, you do pay fees on Stake to invest, but they're not direct fees. You've got to pay a um, a, a currency conversion fee to change your money from Australian dollars to U.S. dollars, and that's something like. 0.07% or something. It's very, it's very small. But you, you pay that fee when the money is changed over to US dollars, but then you can actually trade for free. Once you've got your money in US dollars, you can make as many buys and sells as you want, and they, they all come free. 
Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Carrying on with that, I do also have some interesting facts about this market decline as well. So the the loss of 10% of the the global financial or a loss of value of 10% of the global financial markets creates to about $5 trillion, which is interesting. Obviously, that's only the share market. And I think that when you're looking at the, the, whole, the whole financial markets, that includes also the, the bond market. And I think there's a third portion to the financial markets as well. Um, but the bond market is about three times as big as the, uh, the share market, which I thought was quite interesting. Hmm. Uh, there have been uh, three separate days in which the share market has fallen by over 10% in a single day, uh, but these weren't from record highs. So the first one you've probably heard of, Black Monday, which was 1987. Rings a bell. Yeah, so that fell, that fell by about 20% in a single day. Wow. Which is obviously fairly devastating for anyone who has shares in that market. Uh, there was a fall. There are actually then two other falls that were over 10%. So one of them was 1928. So that was pretty much the, I think that would have been the first major fall in the market that kind of started wobbling things everywhere. I have read a book on on what happened during the Great Depression and things actually, things started to go sideways in 1927, 1928, but nothing actually went very bad until about 1929. And then there was another drop of about, I think this one was about, 10 or 12% or something like that. Uh, and then things just started to, to basically free fall from there. And the, uh, the share market lost about 80 to 90% of its value, which is, as you can imagine, mm, crazy, a, a stunning, stunning amount of money. Uh, so why this coronavirus thing has actually happened is it, it's really just because the, the virus has now spread to, to some places. Um, uh, the U.S. obviously is one of the biggest ones, but but Iran and Japan have also had a day, uh, quite a few confirmed cases come through, and, and people are just worried about, and Italy as well, yes, um, and people are just worried about the supply of resources and uh, and what it will actually do to to the uh, to, to the manufacturing of those resources if the countries do have to go into some kind of shutdown, um, very much like China has done at the moment. Mm. Obviously, these we haven't really had any huge effect on supply. There has been an effect on supply. Uh, but it but it hasn't been so significant to justify. Apparently, it hasn't been so significant to justify a ten percent fall in the share market yet. Uh, but obviously, the share market is one of the things it does is it tries to predict what's going to happen in the future. And I think that a lot of people are worried about uh, you know what what could happen if if things do go sideways with the coronavirus. A lot of the big tech companies have been experiencing manufacturing problems and been trying to move things to sort of India and Taiwan and that just try to tide them yes. over. Yes, yeah, I, I have heard that as well. Uh, but obviously, that's that's hard to do in, in a uh, in a short amount of time, isn't it? Some massive conferences have also been called off. Facebook's F eight, among them, and uh, the GDC, the Game Developers Conference, has been delayed till later in the year. Oh, really? Where yes. were they being held? Um, in the states. Oh, really? Mm. Okay, I, I wasn't actually aware of that. There is also talk that uh, the Olympics might not be going ahead. Yeah. Is that well? Is that true? It's yeah. still on. For now, but they do say that it's it could be cancelled, and that they're not going to delay it. Apparently, it's it's sort of going to be on or cancelled, which would be devastating for Japan. Oh my gosh! Yes, the amount of money I don't know what and they've... infrastructure you've got yeah. to spend to host these things. Yes, yeah, that would be absolutely terrible. Let's hope that doesn't happen though, because I like the Olympics, and I think everybody does. Would be yeah, nice. The Olympics is good. You always yeah. end up watching sports that you. Barely knew existed. 
Yes, exactly. Every four years, you're like, ah, oh. like those little kayak slalom things and that. I quite like those, but yeah. I never watch them any other time. Oh, of course not. No, no. You just become an expert in, in some particular sport and over like a period of whenever the Olympics covers and then that's it. You forget about it again. Yeah. <laughs> Until the next Olympics. Yeah. So I, uh, I also had some, some fun facts that I thought I'd share with you and just you can have a guess at what you think the answers to these things are. So th- these first couple I've actually come up with uh, just because there's a lot of talk at the moment around uh, passive investing and the value of compound interest. So really the idea behind that is you, you put some money into what you think is a, a good, well-diversified investment and with low fees, and then you just leave it there and you, you let the value of compound or you let the, in the, uh, the value of the investment compound over time and hopefully get a good long-term return on your, on your investment. So in that vein, uh, how much do you think $10,000 invested in the S&P 500 so that's the top 500 companies in America in 1980. How much would that be worth today? So is that like an average? Like you have the same stake in every single one of the 500 companies? So you have a proportional stake. Yeah. So yeah. So just as an example, like Apple might hold of the top 500 companies, it might it might hold you know 0.5 percent or something of that. So you'd have 0.5 percent Apple, you know, 0.3 percent Google or whatever it is, and then you know down the list. I mean, I presume all of the top 500 companies have done reasonably well in that time, but I don't know. Some of them might have gone bankrupt. But I know if you had like 10,000 in Apple in 1980, you'd be doing very well today. You you would. So I'll put a caveat on that, though. So how this particular thing has worked out, it's as if you were investing in an index fund. So index funds rebalance the shares that are held in those funds on a, um, on a, I think it's a quarterly or half yearly basis. So you'd be selling out and buying into companies that either move out of the top 500 or are moving into the top 500, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. So it's all held proportionally and then it's just rebalanced every half year. And, you know, you buy into new companies, sell out of old companies. Um, now, this calculation that, uh, that I've found takes into account the fact that you're paying 0.1% in fees, which is fairly reasonable. That's, that's about what a lot, of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of these index funds charge. Hmm. Hmm. I know, it's probably going to be pretty high. Yeah, it's a good figure. But then I don't know, like, how crazy high to go. So, <laughs> like, 2 million? Oh, no, no. You're actually quite a bit over. Okay. I thought I might be, but yeah, thought so go, go high and then come back. <laughs> so it's uh, seven hundred thousand. Uh, oh no, actually, it's it's a bit more than that. So seven hundred and sixty thousand. Okay. Yeah. So still a very good return on ten thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Although yeah. I guess with inflation, like ten thousand could buy a lot more back in nine eighty than it can now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So another another figure that I thought was really interesting. This actually. I don't have a source for this one, but it came up. I remember hearing this in uh, one of Berkshire Hathaway's um, annual conferences. Uh, now, if you were to invest $10,000 in that same S&P 500 fund that I was talking about, so it has about 0.1% fees and it's rebalancing every quarter or every half year or whatever it is. Um, now, if you were to invest $10,000 in 1930, how much would it be worth today? 
Was that still in midst of the Great Depression, or it had sort of come back? By that then? was okay. No, no, it was that was right at the bottom of the Great Depression. So obviously, it's a it's a pretty favourable figure. Yes. So well, that's. I mean, that's a lot longer time as well. So it is. It is. Maybe that's close to like twenty million or something. Ooh, you're actually quite a bit under there. Quite a bit. Thirty million. Mm, you're still quite a bit under. Fifty million. It's very close. Fifty-two million. Mm. Yeah. Well, obviously. Clearly, we need to invent a time machine. <laughs> we do. Yeah. In 1930, though, having ten thousand dollars would have been quite an achievement. So yeah, yeah, exactly. In the first place, yeah. So you know, maybe maybe the more accurate figure would have been a thousand dollars, which even would have been quite a large amount of money, but probably attainable to the Some middle people. class at the yeah. time. Yeah. So this one I really like. So um, Warren Buffett's uh, company, Berkshire Hathaway, wasn't originally his company. He didn't start it. He uh, he 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 bought it and then and then he's turned it into an insurance and an investment company. Now he uh, took it over in 1964. If you'd invested ten thousand dollars in Berkshire Hathaway shares in 1964, how much would it be worth? Would those shares be worth now? Oh, sorry, how much how much would that ten thousand dollars be worth now? I mean, I know Buffett's done very well, but I really don't know have much to uh, gauge it in. But I suppose it's going to be between those two figures. So. Back to my twenty million. Oh, you are you are quite a bit off there. <laughs> times that by times that by twelve. Oh, okay. Wow. Two hundred and forty million dollars. So he he's actually quite decently outperformed the um just just the general share market. He's returned about I think it's between twenty to twenty five percent per annum on average. Obviously, he has good years, he has bad years, but that's that's the average return he's managed. Whereas just just the American markets have returned somewhere between ten to twelve percent per annum. Hmm. So he's he's obviously done done very well. Um, now my fourth question: What is, percentage of the market is the top five hundred? Uh, they would be a very good percentage. I, I don't know what percentage though. Oh, okay. Um, Here I was thinking I it was actually a pretty good segment up the top, but is it like more like half? Uh oh, I you know I, I couldn't even tell you to be honest. I, yeah. I wouldn't even know where to begin. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I mean there are, I think there's a, between twenty to thirty thousand companies listed in the U.S., but obviously a lot of those are quite small companies. Yes. And you know Apple, which is worth over a trillion dollars, could probably maybe be worth about the same amount as three four hundred of them yeah it's ridiculous so, yeah. if you take microsoft and apple and google and amazon yeah 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 so yeah it, it would i wouldn't be surprised if it was around 50 percent. but like, yeah i don't actually know the exact figure mm. fair enough so who do you think uh, the world's richest investor is uh is it not buffett <laughs> well uh, so other who's, names, the, who's really? the world's richest shareholder uh and this kind of has this kind of has two answers. Um, one's a completely correct answer, but another one is I would I would accept the other answer if you if you knew it. I don't think I'm gonna be able to get this. All I know is some big tech people like Bill Gates and that, but he's given away a lot of his fortune in that, so he wouldn't be the richest anymore anyway. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I um, from my research now, I couldn't actually find a source on this one, but I actually think it's Jeff Bezos. Just oh, because really? of the Amazon share he holds. Hmm. But there is actually another answer to this. Um, 
Have you heard of? Oh, I didn't write down the name of the company. Um, I think it's it's the Saudi oil company Aramco, and they are owned solely by the Saudi royal family. So they hold a one hundred percent stake in the company. And the Saudi royal family is actually going to be offering a, an IPO on the company and selling off. Uh, I think about less than a controlling share, so maybe forty five percent or something of the um this this oil company shares and when those shares are offered onto the market apparently the company is going to be worth between 1.5 to 2 trillion dollars wow so really the in a way the saudi royal family are actually the richest uh shareholders in the world only their shares aren't haven't been yet made public although yeah. that may happen sometimes they're privatized at the moment yeah yeah um now my second my penultimate question is <laughs> And this one, this one I thought was quite funny. So Ronald Wayne, have you heard of Ronald Wayne, the third co-founder of Apple? Yes. Yes. Now, Although he wasn't really a co-founder, but yeah, fair enough. In 1976, he did hold a 10% share of Apple. Yeah. And he sold this share for $800. <laughs> How much would that share be worth today? Huge money. Huge money is correct. Well, 10%, I don't even know what they're, they're worth billions now. So it's 10% of... Like three hundred billion or something. Well, Apple's actually worth a trillion now. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm working on very old information. Mm -hmm. So I guess ten percent of a trillion is that right or not? Uh, yeah. Well, that that is essentially correct. Yeah. yeah. So about about a hundred billion, which is, as you can guess, absolutely insane. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> okay. So my final question is, and I thought this one was really interesting. Have you heard of the tulip mania um, that happened in? I think it was around the 1600s in um, in the Netherlands. Like tulip bulbs? Yes, tulip bulbs. Something around yes. bulbs. Vaguely. I can't remember it, though, but it does ring a bell. So essentially it's supposed to be, well, it's the first really well-documented case of, of speculative mania that happened. So there was a huge, for some reason, it was, it was decided that uh, tulip bulbs were a very desirable thing to hold at that point in, um, in the Netherlands. The next hot thing. The next hot thing, exactly. So it was basically the price of tulip bulbs went from whatever they're worth, one or two dollars in today's money, to a ridiculous figure. So my question for you is, can you guess how much tulips were selling for at the height of the tulip mania? Um, and I've got this figure in today's dollars as well. So if they're actually worth one to two dollars, mm -hmm. mm, two orders of magnitude would be a hundred bucks. Surely that's not right. Let's say 50. $50. Okay. Times $50 by $1,000 and you've got some of the cheapest bulbs that were being traded in the day. How could that have possibly happened? There were reports that some of the bulbs were being sold for as much as $750,000. What? No. So a, a lot of how it happened was, um, was through futures and options trading. And this was really the first time that it was, that it was used in the share markets to a large degree. What people were doing was they were buying contracts to buy a tulip bulb. So they would pay, put down, I don't know what it was, like 5%, 1% or whatever of the contract value. They might say, I want to buy five tulips at $200,000. They would pay 10% of that. So they would pay you know, $20,000. They would then hold that contract, sell it to someone else before the contract became due and they owed the the rest of the 200,000, so the remaining 180,000, they would sell it to someone else for maybe $22,000, and that's where their profit would come from. 
And it got to the point where everybody knew how overvalued these tulip bulbs were, but they were still buying these contracts in the hope that they would be able to sell them yeah. before the actual thing came due. And there was a there was a point over um, or coming out of a Dutch winter when all these contracts came due and they everyone defaulted on the contracts and then the whole market for tulip bulbs just crashed. Yeah. So the sucker at the end of the chain lost all the money. Yes, exactly, exactly. The ones in between did quite well. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, it was just it was just pure speculative mania. People only bought them because they thought they could sell them for more. There was nothing else behind the value of the tulip bulbs. Mm, wow. But it is it is a truly insane story when you when you actually listen to to how much like the the volume that was being traded on these tulip bulbs as well. And there was actually the way for valuing the tulips was very strange. And one. One method that they used for particularly rare tulip bulbs was if if the bulbs had some black markings on them, they were seen as being very rare and valuable. But it was later found out that those black markings were caused by a type of rotting fungus uh. that would actually make the bulb completely useless. But people were still paying a premium for these things. <laughs> That's hilarious. It is hilarious. But the stories that came out of that were, were very funny as well. It's, I suppose a lesson when you look at companies like WeWork and and Uber, where it's it's not looking very likely that they'll ever actually be able to turn a profit, but people still pay a huge amount of money to buy their shares. Mm. Wonder whether DD is going to beat Uber in the end. What's DD? DD started in China, and Apple's actually invested in DD. Um, it's the same exact thing as Uber, you know, uh, ride sharing. Yeah, and they had a massive battle in China. You know, where they were basically, because they've both got huge amounts of funding, they were basically giving their service away almost mm-hmm. at far, far below cost just to get user share. DD won out and now Uber's sold every one of their assets over there and have just given it to DD. But now DD's in Australia and it's slowly expanding and expanding. And I think they do have much richer investors behind them than Uber does. So Uber's very scared of them. Well, invest. Uh, so they're still a private company, are they? They're not listed on the share market. Uh, well, they're not in the U.S. share market. They, I don't know. I suppose China has a share market. That could be on there. I don't actually Me too. know. Yeah, because because one thing that tends to happen is, I mean, Uber was a very promising prospect when it was still a private company, because they could just keep on getting more and more funding from from venture capitalists. Mm. But now that they're a public company. It's more difficult to actually get. Uh, so maybe they are still from, private. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's a lot more difficult to get that funding because really the only way a private company can get more funding is if they release more shares into the market. Which existing shareholders, I mean, if you were an Uber shareholder, you probably wouldn't mind too much if it could keep keep them kind of afloat. But existing shareholders don't really like it when they issue new shares because essentially all you're doing is you're diluting the value of the shares that the current shareholders hold. Mm-hmm which is uh, never a popular decision, as I'm sure you can understand. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So you can't get venture capitalist funding when you're um, public. Well, venture capitalist is really just early stage funding anyway. Right. Um, so once they you're, once be you're interested listed. because you can't offer them anything. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So early stage funding obviously has advantages for them. They can usually get the shares fairly cheap of the company and they're coming in at a very early stage as well, whereas Uber is a fairly developed company now. Um, even though they haven't managed to make any profit yet. So it's, yeah, it's unlikely that they'd be getting any funding from venture capitalists. They might have other forms of, of getting money, I'm not sure, but 
I mean, my understanding is that most for most publicly listed companies, the only way they would ever get more sh- funding is just to issue more shares. Mm. And my understanding is they're still running at a loss on every trip they make. I don't know if you if you're aware of that. No, that's probably right because they're still trying to get the market share. I mean, over in the states, they're competing with Lyft as well. Yeah, and I think probably DD is about to start there if they haven't already. So you know. They, I think they want to own the market before they try to monetize it. And I suppose with the ultimate game of um, having, you know, self-driving cars on the road and then a whole fleet of them, then they can take the drivers out of the equation, then they can make some serious money. Well, that's it. And I think that's that's really got to be their end game, doesn't it? Because if, I mean, one of their big problems, like one of Uber's huge problems is they don't pay their drivers very much and they don't really offer anything for the people that work for them. No. And that's always that's always going to be a liability to them until they can they can actually just chop that right out of the equation. The only thing that occurs to me is though, you know, you have a self driving car. I mean, I don't know what you pay for a self driving car. Presumably, they're paying you know tens of thousands of dollars for that self driving car. How long does it take for you to make the money back on that car that you would usually be paying to to your driver? Yeah, so that's why I think Tesla might have the upper hand in this game. Well, it seems likely. Doesn't it? Yeah, because yeah. they're going to offer the the thing where you can have your car that you've bought from Tesla. When you're not using it, you can say when you're not using it, and then it will just join Tesla's fleet of car sharing things, and it will earn you money, but it will be cheaper for Tesla because you've already put the outlay on the actual car. Yes. Yeah. I, I didn't actually know that Tesla were doing that. Do Uber have a finished product when it comes to a self-driving car? No, no one does yet. Quite a few people are close and can do it for certain areas, but not sort of generic quite yet. Right, yeah. They're spending like there's no tomorrow, so I think someone will get it eventually, but it's not quite Yes, it yet. seems likely. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it's, it's all very crazy times we live in, isn't it? Okay, well, let's, uh, let's get cracking on the Sydney train derailment. Although it wasn't actually a train that got derailed. That was the one you were speaking of, right? No, it was a train service. that got derailed. You're not talking about the service vehicle that got no, derailed? No, I know. This is another one. Actually, I actually haven't heard about this <laughs> one. Right. Okay. Uh, this is from okay. a couple of weeks ago. You didn't hear about this story? No, I didn't. So it's the train that goes between Melbourne and Sydney, derailed, around Wallen. Do you know, I didn't even know there was a train that went between Sydney and Melbourne. <sighs> Surely you did. It's a blue one. It takes about... Eight something hours, nine hours. I had no idea. Wow. Well, anyway, there is. You should like mm-hmm. Google the image just so you can see it. Do Sydney to Melbourne train derailment. Okay, so I have the information up here, and it seems wow, it actually killed two people. Yes, it did. Unfortunately, the uh, driver and the pilot died. The pilot was actually from Castlemaine. Oh, really? Which is uh, oh, that's unfortunate. Interesting but sad part of the story. But anyway, I wanted to talk about this for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, first, trains. Trains are cool. No. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But this particular stretch of line has been in desperate need of maintenance for a long time. And many people have raised concerns about this stretch of line. Sort of this is in the north of Victoria. And... There are various feline drivers that will refuse to use the actual tracks that this train uses because they're sort of different um, lines, as you can maybe see from the picture. They're sort of like three across. Um, But anyway, the general story around this train was that it was driving too fast when it came into a 
a, a side lane, like a passing lane, they call it, a passing loop. Yeah. So theoretically, a train can pull into that loop and then another train can go past and then they can continue on. It's sort of like a siding. Understood, yep. So they came along the normal tracks and then they hit it at far too fast a speed and it sort of jumped yep. the track because okay. the setting was set to divert and not to just go straight through. But even if it was set to go straight through, the train should not have been going that fast through one of those. The thing that changes the track from one way to another, I can't remember what they're called. Yes, I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember the word. The switchy thing. So you've got to slow right down for those. Um, So anyway, the reason why it didn't happen, it seems likely that the driver just wasn't aware that they should have been slowing down because for the four weeks previous, this section of track has had signal faults um, and various signals down because of the fires that went through the area that was part of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way they were still able to operate was that they had a pilot and not just a driver. So the pilot was sort of acting as sort of like a human override for the signals. Like they were meant to know the track, inform the driver of what to do, sort of ch- check everything off, like using a paper system. So it seems likely that either through lack of concentration or they just missed something, that that wasn't relayed to the driver and then this, is, this has happened, the end result of it. Oh, dear. But it's sort of the end of line of both signal faults that are just a recent problem and the fact that it's poorly maintained this track anyway. Like the other thing I was going to say, that the V-line trains that operate on this line, uh, they temporarily suspend their service for food because they have a food car on their service. Yes, yeah. Um, So they like halt those meal preparations while they're going through this length of track because it's just way too bumpy that it's like a risk to their staff oh dear so it's like really bad line to begin with so that it's sort of just a culmination of all these problems apparently when uh, this line went in um back in john howard's era yeah and although it was a welcome sort of track to go through and it connected a lot of people yeah they really even back then did it for like the barest minimum budget and basically <laughs> since its inception it's been desperate need of maintenance has just gotten worse and worse and worse and even only like a month before this they put in for like the people responsible for the track i can't remember the association the company but they they said that it's in desperate need of maintenance they went to the government the federal government and the state government i think and said look this is the amount of money that we need to actually do proper line upgrades in that and it was, you know, just said, no, nope, you can't have that. So, oh my gosh. And so it's a, it's a sort of a shocking story that's just been building towards something like this. There was actually a report on the ABC, I think it was Four Corners or yeah. 7.30 or something back from maybe August last year. And they had one of the train drivers and his literal quote was like, it's just going to be a matter of time before it's going to be a derailment on this section of track. And oh my gosh. there it is. So that's terrible. Yeah. To think. Although I know that there are a lot of kind of things that go into these decisions before funding is approved to to upgrade to upgrade these these public services. It, it does kind of feel like if there are genuine safety concerns, it shouldn't be an option not to do it, right? That's that's what I would expect. 
Well, no. And I guess it's hard because you sort of say, well, it's a lot of money for, and it's probably not serving that many people. Yeah. Like, and then the other option is like shut it down, but then you sort of close off communities. Um, the other possibly prudent factor in this case is that Wallen and surrounding districts are in a seat that is not marginal by any stretch of the imagination. So neither side of politics is actually interested in compa- campaigning right. or really putting that much money into the area because it's a very safe seat. Yeah, yeah. So that's possibly part of it too. But you're right, like when it comes to safety, these things really shouldn't be optional. And unfortunately, it probably takes an incident like this sometimes to actually get people into gear. To spur some action. Yeah, yeah. So, so my question is, I didn't even know that this line existed, which is odd because I do travel between Sydney and Melbourne. Yes. Um, do you know how much it costs to take a journey and does it stop along the way or is it straight it, do, it does stop. It does stop. It has several stops. Like it's not stopping constantly because that would just make the journey, which is already quite long, much longer. But it does yes. stop at various major points along the way. So you don't have to travel the full Sydney to Melbourne. Uh, and in terms of costs, I don't actually know, but I know it's more expensive than a plane ticket, I think, at least the cheaper plane tickets. <laughs> so it's more about the experience, and maybe if you're going halfway, it maybe makes more sense as well. Oh, my gosh, what an experience to uh, to ride in a train for over eight hours to, <laughs> instead of a four-hour plane journey. But at the same time, when you go to the airport, you've got to wait in security. You've got to be there hours beforehand, which is not quite the same as the train. So there are some advantages to train travel. Well, that's true. But I suppose, you know, door to door, I would be spending. True. I mean, for you, it doesn't make sense. But if you're a tourist, this might be a good thing. I don't know if they get a lot of tourists or not. But I mean, Z and I, you know, went through south of France and Italy on the train. And that was quite a good experience. So. Maybe people do some sort of similar thing with this. Not that it's terribly glamorous, but, you know, you can probably see some of the countryside. I mean, I've I've travelled by train a lot when I've kind of gone overseas, but Australia doesn't have sleeper trains. Is This this isn't a sleeper train, is it? Uh, I think it does go overnight, so maybe they do have cabins. Okay, so I'm actually just looking up some tickets now. You can get a first-class berth. Two berth bunk styles. Oh, it does have no. It does have sleeping compartments. Okay, but it's probably optional, okay. right? What well, it is, yeah. So um, the so the first class has the sleeping style bunks. Yeah. Um, but the berth the berth has the sleeping style bunks. Everything else is is just labelled as a seat. Interestingly, though, the economy seats are actually. Um, I would say that would be cheaper than a than a plane ticket. How much are they? About eighty eight dollars. Well, yeah, but sometimes you can get a plane ticket cheaper than that. Like on Tiger or Jetstar, they sometimes give them away for like 40 bucks. I would argue that traveling by Jetstar is worse than <laughs> any other fate imaginable. I think Tiger's worse than Jetstar. Jetstar has been all right from my experience. Well, sorry, did I say Jetstar? I meant to say Tiger. Ti- Ti- Tiger, Tiger is... is rough. Tiger's rough. Sorry, yes. No, I, I refuse to travel Tiger anymore. I just can't anymore. do it. You it's used so, to do it. So I was always like, I can't believe you're flying Tiger. <laughs> It's so stressful when you're boarding because, like, they don't have any announcements in their in their terminal. They just have this screen, and it's like, if you miss it, we're not going to let you on. And so you've got to kind of sit next to your like your boarding lane, really stressed out. And then they'll just change it, and you know, like, the board will change, and you'll be looking at the board, and you'll think, now that's not my flight. Have I missed my flight? Oh my god! 
you'll be running around the airport trying to find somebody. They don't hire any staff to look after you because they're so cheap. It's it's just awful. And then if you arrive to check in like 10 minutes late, although admittedly you shouldn't be doing this anyway, but if you do, <laughs> you know, they're, they're just, no, we're not going to let you on. Yeah. Buy another ticket. So it's, it's a bad time. I you get say. what you pay for there. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm paying to be abused. I mean, why would I do that? <laughs> It feels it feels really abusive. Mm. Just like a, a very rough experience where I suppose it's just it's just the, the price of the price of not paying that extra. It's not even that more expensive to travel on a nicer airline as well. You might pay an extra thirty, forty dollars per way. And then you know, you can have some dignity and tr- be treated like a, a human being. <laughs> well, when you're flying cattle class, you gotta expect a bit of rough treatment. You do, yeah. I I was actually reading um I can't remember which airline it was, but they were looking at experimental uh, standing seats in, in some of their flights. So you actually have just, you know, like a kind of a padded backrest. You have a seat belt around your waist and then you just stand. Yeah. And that's that's like their economy. So you can pack more people in. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Could you imagine, though, doing that? That would be terrible. Well, it depends on how long the flight is, I suppose. Like, I feel like I could... I mean, I've stood on a train for an hour and a half. So, I mean, it wouldn't be that much worse than that if it was, say, an hour and a half, two hours, maybe two and a half. That'd be pushing it, though. Well, that's actually true. I mean, I've got to say I find the seats in economy really uncomfortable anyway. Well, that's also what I was going to say. I might almost prefer to stand. Yeah. But I'm almost at the point now where I will buy, I will actually just pay the extra money to get a um, an exit row seat. Yeah, worth it. Just because it's so uncomfortable for me to sit. And I... I mean, do you feel like seats are getting smaller? Because I have that. I don't know if my legs are getting longer. I don't think they are. I think they are getting smaller, at least on the domestic flights. Yeah. Same as buses. I feel like there is a lot less room than there was even five or ten years ago. Mm -hmm. The older planes are better than the new planes, definitely. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right about the buses, too. There's less room on the buses than there was. But, uh, yeah, tra- trains I actually still go okay with, though. I find that I have enough leg room on, on the trains. That's why I like train travel so much, because I can actually fit yeah. into them. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Difficult having those long thigh bones. Yes. Thanks again for joining me, Alex. Not a problem, David. Pleasure as always. You can follow and get in touch with us on Twitter at Tangential Soup, and you can find this week's show notes for more information about today's topics at tsp.fm slash 303. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with anyone you think might also. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Ciao.